You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, I'm Nicholas Sperling. This is a social justice podcast. And today I'm joined by Kate Madden for a conversation about intimate partner violence. Kate, can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, uh, uh, Kate Madden here on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish that we call Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, I'm a parent, mostly. Um, I sell insurance. I uh, have a YouTube channel, have a podcast of my own, and um, I get to play soccer every now and again with Nicola. Are we allowed to talk about that? We, we can talk about okay. whatever you want to talk about. And, and thank you so much for joining today for this conversation. Um, before we get into this, intimate partner violence is a deeply personal issue. And I know that it could be potentially difficult to discuss and probably will be. So I just want to thank you very much for your willingness to have this conversation. And if at any point during this, you need to take a break, you need to skip a question, or you just need to call it quits, feel free to let me know. Um, I don't want to put you in a position where you are uncomfortable and feel like you can't say anything. So feel free to bring that up. I want to begin with just a general overview of what intimate partner violence is, because that's how we like to start all of our conversations. So based off of your understanding, what is intimate partner violence? Uh, it's um, physical, psychological, financial, or emotional abuse that occurs between uh, two people who um, have romantic relations, sexual relations, uh, or intimate an intimate sort of relationship together. Um, typically uh, joined together in, in some way. Right. And do you know what the difference is between intimate partner violence and domestic abuse or domestic violence? Yeah, like in, insofar as, you know, one is specific to their sexual partner or romantic partner versus, say, the system, the system that exists outside of them, whether that be, you know, a parent, child, uh, extended family, uh, but, you know, within the, within the home. Right. Uh, it, it seems like recently there's been sort of a shift to using the language uh, intimate partner violence more so than uh, domestic violence or domestic abuse. And there is a difference between the two. When we're having this conversation about your experiences and your understanding, we're going to be specifically talking about intimate partner violence because that's what you have the most knowledge of. But uh, I just want to be clear that this falls under sort of the umbrella of domestic violence. And, uh, and depending on the situation that someone is in, both of those terms could be valid for them. So when we're talking about violence, I think a lot of people understand violence to be a physical act, but other people would categorize emotional abuse as violence. So when we're talking about interpersonal violence, does that include emotional abuse? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, in intimate partner violence certainly includes uh, emotional abuse. You know, my experience of that is um, name calling uh, specific to my transition um, or even, you know, just um, kind of more subtle things that ultimately are all tied into gaslighting, um, you know, and, and that just that psychological aspect of it and that manipulation of perception like am i am i wrong am i is did i really do something um and you know so like subtle things like um being told about uh you know just your worthiness like are you good enough and being told no you're you're, you're not good enough and so that lowering of the self-esteem uh, over time gradually um, certainly contributes to the cycle of violence, right? Like that circle of violence that exists within an intimate partner uh, context where, um, you know, there's there's the buildup and then there's the incident, whatever incident that is, you know, whether that be, um, you know, financial abuse, you know, like controlling the bank account, for example, um, or um, some sort of... Um, name calling or a physical uh, event and then afterwards there's the reset um, and then when the reset comes you know typically through intimacy um, and it, it just kind of repeats over and over but you get flooded with dopamine 
in that reset. So it's actually you become to you come to associate those feelings of comfort that you you get in that reset with the whole cycle of abuse. So whatever brings that about, because your brain in addiction can't tell the difference between a high, like you're just going through it. And so whether that be emotional, financial, psychological, or, or physical, it's all tied in together to intimate partner violence. Right. And it sounds like it's almost possible for someone who's in an experience like that, if they're being gaslit, to think, am I the abuser? Yeah. You're, yeah. you're the victim, but because of that gaslighting, you're thinking, well, may, maybe it's my fault. That yeah. We're in this and situation. so, you know, something that was said to me a lot in the, the, the last six months of that relationship was um, I was told I was a narcissist over and over and over and over. Um, and so uh, I did what any good narcissist does. Um, and I researched it. And then I went and tried to get help for my narcissism. Uh, so I went and saw three psychologists. I talked to a friend who's a psychologist, reached out to people like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm a narcissist. But it turns out narcissists don't think anything's wrong with them. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that took months and months of work to get to that point where it's like, oh, like I, I've been told this one thing or been assessed or whatever. Um, and in reality, because I, I'd been made to think that it was all me, that I was the one responsible for all this conflict and, and strife because I must be a narcissist if I'm transitioning my gender or whatever to make myself happy. Um, yeah, that, that I, I jumped through all those, those hoops to, to um, try to get that sorted out. Right. Um, so you, in your process of trying to figure out how to deal with your narcissism, you realized that by trying to do that, you were not in fact a narcissist. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, it's, it's amazing how the mind plays sort of tricks on us when we're in those types of situations. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, and it's, it's easy to understand, you know, when people say, well, why, why didn't you just leave? Or why doesn't she leave in those situations? But like, it, you know, it's more than just the house or the car or the kids. It's, it's everything. It's your identity. It's, it's your world. Um, and it's your, your sense of comfort your anchor your reality as twisted as it may be through the the intimate partner violence you know through the gaslighting or what have you it's tied to that situation mm -hmm. i mean i i've been in uh situations where i've had a relationship with someone who was i guess unintentionally manipulative or emotionally abusive they they, they were dealing with their own mental health issues and um, that was being projected onto me, but it's still, uh, even though I don't harbor resentment for their behavior because they weren't in the right state of mind at the time, it had a huge impact on me because mm -hmm. I'm questioning now, am I the problem? Or uh, it took me way too long to leave that relationship just because it was sort of this sense of familiarity, this sense of mm -hmm. uh, comfort, which sounds weird because it was not a comfortable environment, but it felt more comfortable in that moment to stay rather than to leave. Yeah. And I think within uh, those cycles of abuse, it, it is comfort. Whether that be domestic violence, you know, like I, I was an abusive parent. I was uh, physically violent with my children. I called them names. I was not a good parent. Or, you know, within the, the comfort of the intimate relationship, it was, um, it's just something you're, you, you get stuck in. Right. Yeah, that's a hard thing to, to come out of because uh, that was going to be one of my other questions for a little later is why why do people stay in abusive relationships? And I think you've identified some of the reasons um, and that there's also sort of that threat of physical violence in, in some cases as well, where if you leave, I'm going to find you, I'm going to hunt you down. Or, uh, and so there's that fear aspect that keeps people there as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that certainly can uh, can play a role. What are some examples of intimate partner violence that maybe we haven't already discussed? An, an example of um, intimate partner violence perhaps we haven't chatted about yet is, you know, controlling who they talk to or when they talk to them, how they talk to them, 
going through their phone, going through their email, deleting contacts, demanding that uh, contact be severed with somebody, wanting to know details of conversations, you know, driven by insecurity, but also by control. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, I know people have experienced. And it's not something you're going to see, like, you know, um, you're at a bar or you're at the bus station and you see a couple fighting, you know, that's, that's an obvious example that people might be familiar with, but it's, you know, what happens after, what happens at night, what happens on the car ride home, how is that message delivered? Um, you know, and, and what's the consequences if they say no? Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's also, um, when it comes to emotional manipulation, it's not always about, I guess, tricking you into, doing things sometimes it's just about um them saying that they will self-harm and then you not understanding how to deal with that yeah um and yeah I, that's um yeah uh that that's a form of violence that um is uh insidious right because there's a difference i think between oh, someone saying I'm thinking about self-harming, please help me. And someone saying, if you leave me, I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah, it's because it's because you left, you did this to me, and now I want to kill myself. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, um, yeah, I, I had to call 911 at that point um, in that situation mm -hmm. uh, and do a, a wellness check. I called 911 three times in wow. six months. And we sort of talk about intersections all the time on this uh, podcast because we'll be talking about one issue and it'll intersect with another issue that we've talked about. When it comes to being trans, that's an intersection for both of us. And um, my experience of dealing with a situation like that was I had a partner who was saying, I I'm going to hurt myself if you leave. And then we had an instance where he was legitimately attempting to hurt himself. And I had to figure out what I was going to do. This is when we were still together. And I took him to the hospital myself because I didn't trust the police enough to call 911. Yeah. But when we arrived at the hospital, he didn't get the care that he needed because he was trans. So instead of going, this person is in crisis, let's figure out how to help them, they wanted to take blood for some reason, even though he'd the said that he had a huge issue with, with giving blood. Broken trans arm syndrome? Um, it was, they claimed that it was something to do with the process of admitting people and everyone had to go through this process of, of giving blood if they wanted to be admitted to the hospital. And we explained that he was going to have a really difficult time with this, but if it was a requirement, he was willing to go through with it, provided they could guarantee that he was going to be able to see someone when he was there. And they said, yes, yes, of course. But the moment he gave blood, they said, I'm sorry, there's no one here to see you and come back tomorrow. And you'll have to go through this whole process again. So immediately we're going, well, this is awful. And now he's in a, an even worse situation uh, mentally because he's going, I just went through this thing that I really fear um, just to be seen by someone. And now you're telling me I can't be seen by someone. And then we had nurses that were misgendering him constantly. And we tried to say, you know, this is the not, not the correct way to refer to this person. And they would still come out and in front of everyone in the waiting lot, in the waiting area, just use a dead name, use oh, the wrong um, pronouns. And as someone who was trying to be supportive, I just flipped out on them. Uh, I was telling them it wasn't appropriate, all of this. And in the end, we, we couldn't get anywhere. I mean, there's only so far you can go, I can reprimand them for, or, or give them a hard time for, for not doing the right thing and try to do my best to advocate and ended up getting him in to see someone to talk briefly, but there was nothing they could do in terms of prescribing medication, anything along those lines. So I ended up driving him home and I was on suicide watch all night because he was legitimately at that point trying to actively kill himself and I had to mm -hmm. physically prevent that from happening but it, it should never have been on me to do that no. and um, I don't think if he hadn't been trans that that experience would have been 
nearly as horrible for him as it was. But it just... But it sounds like it was a horrible experience for you. It was a horrible experience for both of us. Um, and it made me rethink how to deal with situations. Like, mm -hmm. but, but at the same time, what, what else can you do? If you can't call 911 because of the way the police interact mm -hmm. with you, and if you can't go to the hospital because of the way the hospital interacts with you as a trans person, what do you do? Yeah. You there, know, there's like, not really a solution. So, you know, at the time I was presenting male, privileged, middle-class, suburban Calgary, um, six-figure corporate job, like, you know, big house, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I was still in that frame of mind where, you know, the police were there to serve and protect. Mm -hmm. And um, I know today I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't trust the police, you know, along those lines, uh, especially with the racialized partner, mm -hmm. uh, which I had at the time. Um, cause yeah, you, you can't trust the police and, um, you know, it. um, I, I think I got lucky. I think, I think, uh, yeah, I think I got lucky with the situations that I, I had to interact with the police. Um, but it, it shouldn't come to that. And, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps it was the last vestige of my male privilege as I began to exit that world. Right. Um, cause you know, I was, I went full time, um, presented, began presenting female weeks later within, you know, six weeks of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's also important to note that I didn't not call the police because of, you know, listening to the news and hearing about mm -hmm. stories and sort of internalizing that I had attempted to look past the news and call the police in the past and just seen how horribly those experiences went mm -hmm. and how they didn't necessarily help the people that I was trying to help. So it was through personal experiences of calling and having that not go well that led me to go, I, I need to find a different solution here. And it's a sad state of affairs when your solution is trying to take care of it yourself and go directly to the hospital instead yeah. of having a police officer transport you there. And that still doesn't work. And you're sort of at a loss at that point going, well, I've tried all of the avenues that I think will work for solving this issue and they're not working. But I think it's increasingly complicated when you're dealing with a matter of interpersonal or um, intimate partner violence, because who do you call in a situation like that? Especially when it comes to physical violence, if you're afraid for your life, yeah the hands of someone else is there another option beside the police that you can turn to um <clears throat> you know in this um capitalist world where we've outsourced and commodified everything and we don't have the capacity as a community to take care of each other mm -hmm. um I, I think the resources are very limited and so if you're listening to this right now and you're in that situation find the resources that are local to you and if that is the police and you are afraid for your life, like you need to call, mm -hmm. like, um, or find a shelter maybe that, that can take you in and, and help you go through that process. Yeah. Um, would that shelter require a police report or victim right. services? I, I, I don't know. Some of them do, some of them don't. Um, will they accept you if you're trans? Yeah. You know, that was a big thing for me that night that, um, things happened as I was on the phone and they had to get back to me, you know. They didn't know immediately whether or not they would accept you? So, um, you know, I was in the hospital when they called me back. Wow. So that time that it took them to figure out whether or not they would allow you at their shelter was the difference between getting the help that you needed and not getting it? Uh, yeah, basically. Wow. Yeah. That's a sad state of affairs. Yeah. Um... I mean, it's it's really isolating. Like when you're in that that position, like you know, I I remember at the time, like I uh, I'm very close with my siblings, but I didn't feel like I could reach out to them. I didn't feel like I could talk to them. Like I was, you know, good enough to oh. speak to them when I was going through this. So I called my brother-in-law. Um, who's, you know, a good man and 
was there for me and helped me. Um, but like, you know, that's part of that whole cycle going back to that psychological manipulation and, you know, that erosion of self-worth is like, you know, you're, you're never sure if you're worthy, you know, do you deserve this? Well, of course I did. I must deserve this, you know, the abuse. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, or the hassle with, you know, bureaucracy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, we, we just, we don't have the resources in, in community. I, th- I feel as a society to, to handle it. And unfortunately so much of it has been, uh, offloaded onto the, the police services. Um, you know, a lot of times for for the worse mm-hmm. a term i you know like recovery is is uh it's a long process mm-hmm. um and recovery and healing from this sort of situation is not linear uh, but one of the things that i encountered a concept i encountered early on in my healing journey working with therapists and, and stuff and um kind of helped me understand the dynamic i was living through and experiencing even after I had exited the relationship um, is um, if you remember in Wizard of Oz the Wicked Witch of the East releases the flying monkeys to go find uh, the Lion, the Witch and the, the uh, or no that's C.S. Lewis <laughs> um, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man and the Lion and Dorothy um, and, and so one thing that abusers will do is they will create a, a triangulation effect and they'll try to isolate you from family from friends from your social circles uh, from your systems of support and they use people who are in that circle or in your circle or in their circle and they send them out and essentially they're spying on you and reporting back and they might not even know they're reporting back then just might be having what they think is a normal conversation mm-hmm. but the abuser will use even small pieces of information they will use that to attack the victim and you know i've, I've experienced it even as recently as a week ago you know a very specific situation where um that there's a piece of information that was used to deliberately inflict harm wow um you know that somebody would have had an innocent conversation with them right and recognizing that there may be these flying monkeys out there what motivates you to come on a podcast like this to have this conversation um i don't know what my place is nicola in the whole conversation really like you know i i'm i'm someone who uh, has experienced intimate partner violence i'm someone who's participated in it reactively you know so like i i was charged with with a crime um through the course of the end of my relationship the charge was with withdrawn a week later i'm responsible for my actions and i can i can do that in a way now i feel that is free from shame and so i i guess what i'm i'm trying to do in coming on this podcast is um share my story um to, these situations are often complex there is often layers of abuse and it's hard to tell who's the victim and who's the abuser in a lot of these situations because of that reactive nature of abuse um and i i want to ease the stigma somewhat if there's somebody else listening to this um you're regardless of their gender uh, but uh, especially for any trans woman, closeted or, or otherwise out there who experience this, um, that these things happen. These things happened to me, and that matters. And, um, you know, if my story can help someone, if they can at least identify in their life, you know, maybe what's going on, whether that be through being able to just simply recognize where they are in, in the cycle of, of violence and the cycle of abuse or to understand the role of trauma bonding in the relationship and you know maybe it's not really love um or um something that helped me as well was uh understanding 
attachment styles and um you know understanding myself as uh, an avoidant uh partner um you know like there's secure avoidant anxious uh i think disordered is the fourth one i, I could be wrong it's been a while since I've, I've looked at that but you know like there's tools out there that can help people um you know both in the moment to recognize what's happening and also as they begin to exit the relationship and exit that cycle uh to um begin the road to healing uh, whether that be through working with therapists working with resource groups community groups or what have you um you know i i think there's there's value in that right and when you talk about that sort of abuse and then the reactive response to the abuse that can also be abusive is or i guess recently we heard about the case of um johnny depp and amber heard that was in the news mm. and a lot of people were saying that one of them has to be the abuser and then the other one is the victim of abuse and that there is no such thing as mutual abuse do you agree with that what i will say is it was really hard to watch and read some of that stuff not like the people commenting on it but like actually reading the i only watched a couple of those videos and it, for a while there last year it was everywhere it <laughs> like was. you could not go online without seeing it mm -hmm. um which is also very weird yeah it was uh which you know um says something about us as a society but you know word for word I, I heard things that Johnny Depp said to Amber Heard and word for word I said some of those things or I said some of the things Amber said to Johnny or you know I, I have heard the things Amber has said to Johnny um, so yeah like so it's quite triggering in some ways is it? it was super triggering mm -hmm. um, hundred um, percent and maybe I shouldn't use the word triggering in that it didn't induce a trauma response mm -hmm. but it certainly it was upsetting for sure right uh, and I imagine it was upsetting for quite a few people who've had similar experiences yeah. and are seeing this now plastered over mm -hmm. over the because I, I don't think there's any um, I you know I don't want to get into the specifics of the case it was yeah I think I don't want to make this yeah. a podcast no, about that case, I, but yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a very strange situation and weird that we as a society are consuming other people's dirty laundry in that matter. I found that quite strange. One, that people would want to air that to the world, and then two, that the world wants to see that aired. It was a very strange dynamic. Um, well, <clears throat> you know, when you consider how prevalent domestic violence is like how many people have experienced it how many people have experienced intimate partner violence you know maybe there's just echoes of their own life in there that mm -hmm. they're seeing reflected back on their on their phones and on their computer screens right celebrities are not immune to this you know they've been through what I've been through sort of idea mm -hmm. plus parasocial relationships right and I mean um you know real life tv drama types things are really popular um, reality tv it's really taken off so i guess it's along those lines as well um so just coming back to types of intimate partner violence uh, i just wanted to outline some of the ones that i came across for our audience so that people have an understanding of what may be considered intimate partner violence what may not um hitting slapping punching kicking burning strangulation, sexual assault, damaging personal property, refusing medical care and or controlling medication, coercing partner into substance abuse, use of weapons. I think there's a number of items on that list that I didn't necessarily realize would fall under intimate uh, partner violence. What are your thoughts as I read out that list? Uh, yeah, those certainly um, line up with some of the things I've experienced. Something that uh, I know is common as well, that um, it's kind of a red flag for the police when I talked with the police, um, the other person is like preventing you from exiting a room. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Like if you're trying to leave the conversation or leave that abusive situation, like you're trying to, you want to get out of the room, you want to get out of the house, whatever it is, and they don't let you. Imprisonment, essentially. And so, uh, you know, standing in the doorway. Mm-hmm. And basically the choice is you go through them or injure them uh, to leave, or you go back and sit down and continue the, the beat down, so to speak. Um, and there is a word for that. I forget what the word is, but there, there is a specific term for that kind of physical control. Right. Um, but apparently that's something that's very common as well is um, where, you know, you might not think that's abusive because nobody's getting hurt. You're just standing in the doorway like, you know, I, I didn't touch you. I'm, I'm not touching. Like, I, you know, like you would just stand there. So, you know, just trying to, yeah, block your exit. Right. So basically making you choose between, are you going to take the the physical abuse of trying to get past me or are you going to take the emotional abuse of staying here and listening to Or, you know, hurt them to leave. Right. You know, knock them over or what have you, which, you know, uh, I wouldn't do. Right. So then you're just stuck in that situation because you're not willing to go Mm -hmm. to the lengths required to exit. Yeah. Wow. Um, do you know what the most common type of intimate partner violence is? I'm curious. What? what? It, well, in my research, it sounded as though it was uh, psychological. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting that the most common form of violence is psychological violence, because I think a lot of people would dispute whether or not psychological manipulation is violence. Um, but when it comes to intimate partner violence, it seems like the consensus is this falls under that definition and it, in fact, it is the most prevalent form mm. of violence. Well, yeah, I can see it, you know, certainly is a part of the cycle of abuse and, um, and can easily degrade the physical violence. I keep going back to the cycle of abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, the intimacy is what resets the, the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's no intimacy, the abuse becomes um, uh, it, it, it becomes magnified because mm-hmm. there's no ability to exit the cycle, so you're just stuck in that abuse. Oh, so the intimacy is like making up almost, and then you restart the mm-hmm. process. Which is what happened with us: is that you know we <clears throat> were trauma bonded. Excuse me, and. Um, Yeah, like we stopped having sex and stopped being intimate. I moved into the basement and there was no ability to reset. Right. That's um, sadly a story I've heard from a number of people. So I I guess that's something that's quite prevalent. And I know uh, we were just talking about uh, psychological abuse and how that's a form of intimate partner violence. I have never dealt with physical abuse from someone that I've been intimate with. I have dealt with psychological abuse, and honestly, until quite recently, it never occurred to me that that would be a form of intimate partner violence, and I would have just said I've never encountered that before, when in fact, I do have uh, a fair amount of trauma associated with that experience. Mm. Um, Not that I blame that person, because like I mentioned before, it was a result of mental health issues that were not being taken care of, but... Uh, regardless, that that's uh, a big form of what I've experienced, and it sounds like that's um, something that's quite prevalent as well. My next question is, why do people engage in abusive behaviors? So sort of looking at this from the other side of things, what might lead someone to engage in abuse? And, and you've talked about, uh, from your perspective, it being sort of reactionary, but I don't know if you're able to put yourselves in the shoes of someone who instigates. Uh, I'm just wondering, from my perspective, I would never want to be abusive towards someone. I don't know if that's the case for abusers and and somehow something leads them to being abusive other than just wanting to be abusive. Or maybe that that's just a, a condition that some people experience where just by their very nature, they, they want to abuse others. Uh, <clears throat> like, I'm sure sadists exist out there and, mm-hmm. and are manipulative enough to um, force or manipulate their way into relationships and gain that 
I don't know if it's satisfaction or pleasure, like a sadist or uh, would would get from that sort of thing. And I, I think that's perhaps something different than abuse. I don't know that anybody grows up wanting to be abusive, right? I would hope not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I reflect back in my own experiences when I've been abusive, and it's usually when I am just so out of control. Like I have no ability to control the situation or self-regulate in those moments. Right. So and it's a it, mental health issue with regard so to that as well. You're just not having the not having the 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 self management, like the tools to do a body scan, to check yourself, like to realize what's going on and mm-hmm. pause or exit. because um, it's hard in, in those moments, right? You're just reacting. Mm-hmm. You're almost even as an abuser a victim in some ways. Um, not not a victim of the abuse, but a, a victim of, of circumstances, uh, circumstances, I, mental yeah. health, whatever it might be. Yeah, I, I, I think it's. I, I think my own coming out story as trans is. Um, I think that that was abusive. You know, I, I'm codependent, so you know, I am a disordered helper. You know, I will hurt myself to help you, but in the process, hurt you too. And, um, you know, the security of my life, comfort, the comfort of the closet, the comfort of my life was so much more important to me than the love. And um, I did everything right. Like, I checked off all the boxes. I did all the things, you know, father of the year, husband of the year, all, all the things. But in the end, it was all lies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, I, I would put forward that, that that's abusive. Right. Um, maybe it's an unpopular opinion in the trans community. But um, in retrospect, you know, I, I manipulated the situation. Like, um, Dr. John Gottman, I want to say, Gottman Institute. I might have the name wrong, but I don't think I do. Uh, has written a number of books about marriage and communication in relationships. I think uh, the most popular one is Seven Principles of Making a Marriage Work, or um, someone can fact check us, but mm-hmm. there's a book out there. Anyways, I read that book, and then I did all the things in the book because that was the script and I, yeah, that, that, that was abusive. So, you know, I, and it was abusive because I was, I was controlling this. Yeah. Yeah. I was controlling the situation and, um, manipulating the situation and hurting someone really in the end, I hurt someone with that. Um, and you know, the, the price of existence is authenticity, right? Like mm-hmm. y- you can you can live a life of lies and but not really live, or you can be yourself and right. be full and live and love as yourself. Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, specifically a person who I know who is a trans woman, but who has not transitioned because she wants to be a good father for her kids. Um, previous to her divorce, wanted to be a good husband to her wife. And it sounds like from from that perspective that we were just talking about, that trying to pretend that you're something you're not is not helping your kids or your partner. Or yourself. Definitely not not helping yourself. Um, And I think she understands that. But in her mind, it's helping the kids and helping the wife by not coming out of the closet. Sure. Um, I thought like that for years. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time I came out, I was 19. Like, you know, I was, I came out to a friend. Um, I tried to transition more than once through the course of my, my marriage. Came out to previous girlfriends, uh, but it was always um, fear. 
and comfort that held me back and mm -hmm. in the end you know i i'm not like them <laughs> i'm not trans like them i don't want to be like jerry springer or you know because right. those I, are the role models that yeah i mean even would, prior to my transition yeah. all i knew about trans people was what i'd seen on on uh, clips of jerry springer yeah. or, or what i'd seen on Pornhub because you search you know um man who wants to be a woman or something mm -hmm. like that and those are the types of things that pop up you don't get a good education about yeah. what it means to be trans or at least you didn't back then yeah very problematic very sexualized for sure um <clears throat> but you know you're just you're just holding yourself back like at the end of the day um and you're not giving your full self to people like that you love yeah, a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine who's a trans parent as well, um, talked about the difference between her experiences parenting prior to transition and afterwards. And it really resonated with me where, um, yeah, she was abusive and physically violent with, with her kids and she uh, demanded respect, mm. you know, like... That's kind of the, the the playbook that men are given is you you demand it and you extract it, mm -hmm. um, especially with sons. Uh, and now um, she feels, you know, in being her full self and her authentic self years later, that she earns their respect and earns their love. And, you know, I, I just spent two weeks with my kids and... Like it's it's so much better. Like it's just your relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um you know, the laughter, the the affection, um the honesty, the safety as well. Like, you know, the things they feel safe telling me about and sharing with me. Um it just make it it makes it all worth it. I mean I I didn't know you before you transitioned. We met af after um, or maybe when you were in the process, I'm not entirely sure, but I've always known you as Kate, and um, the relationship that you have with your kids seems so great um, from my perspective, so I'm glad to hear that it's that way because it's improved so much over the years. Are there any warning signs that someone can look for? Um, I mean, obviously, you know that you're in an abusive relationship when you finally clue into all of the all of the signs, but are there, there are things that you can look for before it gets to that point to say this could turn into an abusive relationship? Um, I imagine there are clinical things that people, you know, have researched and can identify. Like a psychiatrist or psychologist might be able to tell. Um, it sneaks up on you. Like, you know, if, if you're not mature enough in your own sense of self-awareness, um, your own sense of self-worth it, it can be hard to recognize that you know especially like you know talking about authenticity and everything like if you're deriving your sense of meaning and existence externally versus internally like you know like there's 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 it's not going to be you know the the devil doesn't come in a red suit with a pointed trident and pointy horns the devil comes in a pretty little pink box and you know you want to say yes to because it's so easy it's so comfortable mm -hmm. um and maybe that person doesn't it's, isn't even aware of what's going on um you know i'm just kind of reflecting through here and i guess things that i was told early on in dating that kind of I was asked about later on by professionals would be a history of um, assaulting their partners, mm -hmm. controlling social contacts, who they're talking to, like a story about going through their phone or, or whatever. Um, like if, if the person that you're seeing is talking about how they went through an ex's phone or something yeah. along those lines, that would be a warning. Or their, e their email. Mm -hmm. um, I can't quite put put a finger on anything I, I can. I think for me personally, I've recognized, or I hope I have at least, that 
if someone wants me to give up my boundaries, that's a big red flag. Yeah. And I've had instances where I've set out my deal breakers at the beginning of a relationship. I said, this is, um, in one of my relationships, for instance, it was monogamy. And I went into it and I said, I'm a monogamous person. And as far as I understood it at the time, I was always going to be a monogamous person. And the person who I was dating had said, I've been polyamorous in the past, but I'm willing to be monogamous for you. And then we got about a year into the relationship and it became, well, I'm not being fulfilled by a monogamous relationship. Um, I want you to change for me. And I, I had been clear about my boundary, but they didn't seem to respect that that was my boundary. And I said, if you need to be poly, then you need to be poly and that's fine. Um, but this relationship isn't going to work if that's going to be the case. And it just became a constant issue. And it wasn't the only thing. Um, that's just the first example that came to mind. But when I'm dating people now, if I've laid out my boundaries and they think that they can push those, mm -hmm. that's a big red flag yeah, for me. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I, I think within the context of intimate partner violence, there are no boundaries. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, where does one end and the other begin? Which leads to that complex situation where it's hard to tell maybe who is victim and who's the abuser or who's participating and who's not. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's challenging and as much as you can try to prepare for it, and that's why I say I, you know, I hope I've learned because yeah. you, you don't necessarily know. I, I could find myself in another situation like that again just because I didn't recognize the signs mm -hmm. or um, they were just saying all the right things or whatever it might be. Um, I certainly don't want to come across as pretending like there's a surefire way to avoid an abusive relationship um, or make anyone think that if they're in an abusive relationship that it's somehow their fault or that they did something wrong to get to that point because I don't think that that's ever the yeah, case. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. it's never their fault. We've gone through sort of the general questions that I have about uh, intimate partner violence, and, and you've shared some of your personal experiences as well, which uh, thank you again for your willingness and your vulnerability in doing that. Is there anything else at this point that you'd like to bring up, whether it's about intimate partner violence in general or about your personal experiences? Maybe I'd just say one thing I wish I could have told myself back then, years ago, so that it's going to be okay. It seems like it's the end of the world, but it's going to be okay, and it's okay to ask for help. It's an easy thing to to say and a hard thing to do, right? To ask yeah. for help. Yeah. Like, um, I, I had to, <laughs> I, I started to go see therapists about my narcissism. <laughs> I started to go see therapists in secret. Mm -hmm. Like, I would, I would hide going to therapy but you know you're worth it like you're you're worth it you are good enough you didn't deserve this you didn't do anything wrong um and it's gonna be okay i think not not to deflect away from the topic but i've been watching some videos about uh, financial planning <laughs> recently and what I found quite refreshing that uh, with some of the people who are creating these videos as opposed to others is that some people recognize the value of therapy. And uh, that could be the emotional value or the financial value, mm -hmm. but the concept that, yes, it's expensive, but if you can afford it, you should do it. Everyone should be in therapy because it really does help you to get that perspective. I came here right after a therapy session. Mm -hmm. I, had, I was in therapy a couple hours ago. And my therapist picked up on issues that I didn't even know walking in there I wanted to talk about or that I was struggling with. And she just asked the right questions. She could read me and was able to bring up a lot of issues that I need to work on that mm -hmm. I didn't realize I needed to work on. So I think it's super valuable for anyone to, to be in therapy if you can access it. Yeah, I agree. single best thing I've done in the last five years is... Uh, therapy. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think it's the best investment. Yeah, honestly. I, like I, for a long time, I avoided it because I went, I, I don't have the money. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I had the money, I started going because it's such good investment in yourself, both mentally and and even financially. I think the the fact that I've gone to therapy has allowed me to open up new doors for revenue income as well. So um, it's it's just an all-around good investment in yourself. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to bring up? Um, no, I, I feel like we covered a lot. We did, yeah. Um, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube... <laughs> Um, I hope there's some links in the comment section, just resources for people mm-hmm. to access nationally, internationally, wherever you're watching from. Do you have some resources to suggest or shall I do some research and pop them in the comments? Yeah, I, I think it's important, um, to look at local resources. Mm-hmm. Um, that would, that would be the, the key thing. Um, yeah, rec- recognizing that people who are listening to this may not all be local to here. Yeah. I'll, I'll do my best to include some resources that are local to, to Vancouver where we're uh, yeah. doing this podcast, as well as maybe some national or international resources if those are available as well. And before we wrap up the podcast, I always like to end on the note of what our listeners can do to help when it comes to the issues. So whether that's reducing stigma, volunteering with organizations that su- support... Um, anti-abusive work of some kind there, there are a lot of avenues that people can go to, to help but what, what would your suggestions be if you have a, a bedroom a couch you know just let them know that they can stay like the doors invite open. people over yeah the doors open you know like even if it's just to get away for a night like and i think opening the door to not just allowing someone a, a safe place to reside but also uh, a person that they can talk to Um, that's usually where i struggle when i'm dealing with mental health issues or issues of of psychological abuse not feeling like i have someone that i can reach out to has been uh, a really big issue so i think letting people know you can stay in my bed if you need a safe place but also you can call me uh, or if they're a close friend maybe checking in on them periodically yeah. and you don't have to solve this this the issue like mm-hmm. you're just listening you're just sitting beside them walking with them yeah yeah sometimes that's all you need is is someone to just listen to what you have to say well thank you so much for joining me on this podcast uh, this is probably one of the most difficult conversations that we've had uh across all of our episodes because a lot of times we're talking about issues from um an education basis, you know, someone has done a lot of research on a topic, or it's a topic that affects us all, but not super personally. Uh, This is a very personal matter to talk about. And again, I just really appreciate your willingness to have that conversation, um, the vulnerability that's required to have that conversation. It's super appreciated personally, and I hope that it's appreciated by our audience as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Nicola. Mm -hmm. And this has been a social justice podcast. Our topic today has been intimate partner violence, and I look forward to seeing you in the next one. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.